I can always tell when my kids are really sick because they're actually still uh, for more than an hour. And uh, my son was very sick a couple of months ago. He had a very high fever, and we counted. He actually threw up 26 times in 36 hours. And he was just miserable. And so uh, I told him, you know, we'll, we'll need to take you into the doctor. And his first question was, will I have to get a shot? Which is always his, his question when we have to go to the doctor. And I said, no, they don't give shots for this. And then we went to the doctor. And um, <laughs> the, the doctor took a look at him. And she said, well, buddy, she said, you have two options. She said, one option is you can get a shot. And his eyes went wide like that. And my eyes were wider than, than his at that point. And she said, or you can drink a really, really yucky cup full of medicine. And, and she said, but I'll have a little sucker right next to you. And you can eat the sucker as soon as you drink the medicine. And, of course, he went for the medicine. And I could see just before he drank it that his eyes were just starting to fill up with, with tears and I felt so sorry for him, but he kind of choked him back, and he was brave, and he drank it, and he, asked, he answered all of her questions, and uh, he was just great, this little four-year-old boy sitting on this big table answering questions from the doctor. And as I sat in my chair watching him do this, I'll tell you what, I felt like my heart was going to explode with love for this kid. I mean, I was so happy to be his father at that moment and, and so glad that he was my son. And, and I felt like there was not a single thing in the world that I would not do gladly if he needed me. And, and I feel that way about all of my kids, and, and you feel that way about all of your kids if you have them. There is no way that my children or your children could possibly begin to comprehend the love that we have for them, is there? Let me ask you this today. Do you believe that God loves you like that? Do you believe that God loves you like that, with that same happiness, that same warm affection, that same incredible devotion? I'm not talking about a sappy, sweet, cotton candy infatuated boyfriend kind of love. I mean, the love of a father who is committed to you for the long haul, no matter what may come, and in spite of all of your issues and struggles and and problems in life. Do you believe that God loves you with a love that will discipline you as you need it, but also a love that longs to bless you? And longs to bring you good. The Bible tells us that every believer in Christ is loved like that. And yet I think most of us have a hard time believing that a love like that from God could actually be true. Some of us, in fact, are very, very good at explaining the love of God vividly and wonderfully to other people. But... We only catch glimpses of it ourselves. We, we don't experience it the way that we hope other people would. And more often than not, it's something that we acknowledge in our minds, but we don't really experience in deep places in our hearts. I think that most of us, when the rubber meets the road, consider God's love to be obligatory. Not a wholehearted love, but a love that loves because it's supposed to, because that's what's expected of it. Not an enthusiastic love, but 
a love that loves out of contract or out of arrangement. And this morning, what I want to suggest to you is that that kind of love, a love of compulsion, but not a love of joy, is absolutely not the love of the God of the Bible. In fact, it it certainly was not the love that the Apostle Paul described. Listen to the way that he talks about the love of God. He has a prayer in the book of Ephesians chapter 3 that goes like this. He's praying for them and saying, that you, Christians, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And then in Romans chapter 8, he writes, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so when you put these two passages together in Ephesians, you've got a love that is so long and so wide and so high and so deep that you cannot possibly begin to grasp it. And then in the book of Romans, you have a love that nothing, no matter how powerful or frightening or even evil it is, can possibly separate you from it or take you away. The Apostle Paul describes a love that is so vast and so enduring that it seems to us like it must come from a different world. And that's because it does. This is the love of heaven, which comes straight from the heart of God himself. And what we see is that it is anything but obligatory or superficial or forced. This is a love, Paul says, that cannot be measured and it cannot be overcome. And this love, this is how you are loved in Christ. This morning, if you belong to God, this love is yours and nothing can stop it. It is hard to believe in that kind of love, isn't it? We all struggle to to taste that. Maybe it's a little easier now because we're in church and we've prepared our hearts for this somewhat, hopefully, but we leave here and, boy, do we struggle to trust these things, don't we? Uh, Most of us, I, I think, do not feel in any way deserving of a love like this, and we wonder if God could truly love us in this way in spite of all of our failings and mistakes. And not only that, but we tend to distrust even the character of God himself. Is he capable of loving like this? But this morning, what I want to try to do my best to do is is to prove to you that this love is real and that this love is true. And in fact, the Bible points us in particular, the New Testament, to two pieces of evidence that are expected to prove to us that this really is the way that God loves us, that this love of heaven is real and it is true. And what I want to do this morning is just look at these two things. The first one we are told in the scripture is the cross. 
If we want proof that God loves like this, the first thing that we look towards is the cross. Uh, There's a story that's told, uh, it's probably not true, but it's a good story, uh, about Genghis Khan, who was a great Mongolian uh, emperor, uh, who was known for his impatience and and anger. Well, there's a story that uh, he loved to hunt, and he would go out on these great hunting excursions with a hawk that was his favorite pet, and the hawk would kind of fly up above, and then it would land on him and and these kinds of things. And he was out hunting on a very hot summer day with his big uh, group of troops, and somehow he got separated from them. And he was all by himself just with his hawk. And it was very, very hot. And he did not have any water to drink. And he looked around. And what he saw was a cliff that was about 50 or maybe 75 feet high. And he could see that at the top of the cliff, just because he could see the edge, there was a pool. And in a break in the rock, there was a little bit of water that was just dripping down from the top of that pool. And so he sent his hawk flying. He took off all of his armor. And he took the only thing that he had to collect the water, which was a little tiny cup. And he put it in front of the, the drip, which was going very slowly. And finally, after waiting several minutes, the cup uh, filled enough so that he could have just one sip of water. And he was actually absolutely parched by then. And he went to take a sip from the water, and the story goes that at just that moment, the hawk flew down and knocked the cup uh, out of his hand, spilling the water all over the ground. And his anger uh, geared up, and the hawk flew away, but he grabbed the cup again, and he began to fill the cup with, with water again, drip after drip. And some uh, time went by, and by now he was so thirsty, he could hardly stand it. And finally there was enough in the cup, and he went to drink the water. And at that moment again, the hawk came down, knocked the cup down, and spilled all of the water. And he was in a rage at that point. And he grabbed the cup, he stood up, put his cup in, in the other hand, and he said, this time he'll be ready. And he pulled out his sword. And he filled up the cup, and and it took several minutes once again. And this time, sure enough, when the hawk came to knock the water out of his hand, he took his sword, and he cut the hawk, and the hawk landed on the ground, bleeding and dying. But as he did that, the cup fell from his hand, and it fell into a crack in the rock where he wasn't able to get it. And, And at this point, furious with anger, he decided... He was just going to climb the cliff and, and have a drink out of the pool himself. And, and he did that. It took him quite a bit of time to get to the top. And when he got to the top, the story says he looked over into the pool and he saw something that made his heart stop. And that was that in the pool, lying dead, there was a venomous snake, a terribly poisonous snake. And he could see from the fangs of the snake that there was uh, poison oozing out into the pool. And that had he drunk that water, it would have been for him certain death. Now here you have a story that on one side you've got a man who is incredibly impatient, very angry, who wants what he wants, even though the thing that he wants is going to lead him to death. And on the other side of the story, you've got a faithful friend who shows the extent of his love by sacrificing himself to rescue this man from his own foolishness. Does the story sound familiar? To Christians, it does. That story is our story. The book of Romans, chapter 5, verse 8 says, God shows his love for us, right? The evidence of God's love for us is, the book says, the, the passage says, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
uh, Christians know and, and believe that the, that the Bible teaches that every person without exception is a sinner, even those we might consider the best of us. It teaches that the wrongs that we've done, the lies that we've told, the corners that we've cut, the injustices that we've ignored, the people that we've used, all of our secret acts of wrongdoing may have seemed okay at the time, but they've caused us terrible harm. Because the Bible teaches that sin is like poison. It works itself out slowly, but it always works itself out. And in the end, the result of sin is always death, the Bible teaches. Eternal separation from God. And that every person who is, without exception, a sinner, stands guilty before a holy God. And yet, what this verse also tells us is is something wonderful. It tells us we're all sinners. That's bad news. But it tells us great news. And that is that like Genghis Khan, we too have a friend. That Jesus Christ, who was both God and man, swooped down into this world to rescue us from the poison of our own sin. And in fact, it would teach that he actually offers to drink the poison for us. That on the cross, even though Jesus deserved none of it, he took sin upon himself so that he could die in our place to pay our price for our sins. And the Bible says that when we receive this, when we trust this in faith, when we repent from our sins and believe in his gift of forgiveness, that we are certainly forgiven. And that 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 forgiveness is complete. It's total. It can never be undone. Jesus is the antidote to sin and death. And it sets us free. One evidence of God's love is Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God shows his love for us. In that, while we were still sinners, though no one deserves it, Christ died for us. And so one reason that you and I can know that that love that Paul writes about is true is the cross. The Bible would teach that anytime you're ever tempted to doubt the kind of love for you, look at what he's done. Look at what it cost him. Look at what God did so that you could be right with him and forgiven of your sins. The cross, Paul says, is the greatest display of the love of God. However, it is not the only evidence of the greatness of the love of God. And what I want to do this morning is I want to talk with you about a second evidence that we have that the Bible offers as proof of God's love. And it is absolutely remarkable. In fact, it builds on the first one. It builds on the fact that we are forgiven by God, declared righteous by God because of his sacrifice on, on our uh, behalf. In fact, it requires that. And so what I want to do is I want to invite you to turn to the book of Luke, chapter 8, verse 19. It's on page 865. And what we're going to find in this passage is that Jesus is actually going to start to hint about this next thing that God is going to do that builds on the first thing. And it's kind of a Interesting, strange story. Luke 8, verse 19 through 21. It's a very short passage on page 865. 
Jesus is teaching. There's a great number of people who are crowding in to hear him teach. And there's a situation that happens. It says in verse 19, Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. Okay, pretty ordinary situation. Jesus' response is not what at least I would expect. Verse 21, But he answered them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Huh. Sounds a little harsh, doesn't it? Isn't that kind of a strange response? You you would have expected him to say, well, bring them in. Or, just a second, I'll go out there and talk to them. This is is Mary and and, and his his brothers. Well, it, it seems to be almost offensive, right? Is this Jesus rejecting his mom and brothers? I mean, is this the equivalent of a teenager who asks his mom to drop him off a few blocks away from the school because he's embarrassed to be associated with them? The answer to that question is no, not at all. Not at all. Then then what is Jesus' point here? What's happening in this passage? Well, his point is, he says, that those who hear the word of God and do it... Okay, who are those people? Who are the people who hear the word of God and do it? Christians, right? His, his followers, they're the people who hear what he says and who believe it. He says, those people are his mothers and brothers. What, what he's saying here is that the relationship that he has with his earthly mom and brothers is not exclusive. In fact, he's saying, anyone can be like my mother and brothers. Okay? Now, what does this mean? Well, he's not so much lowering the position and status as of his mother and brothers as much as he's elevating everyone else's. What he's saying is that Mary is no more a full-fledged part of his family than any other believer is. She doesn't get special privileges or benefits that anyone else who hears his word and listens to him doesn't. And this is actually a profound statement of Jesus because what he is saying is that those people who have trusted him are not just his fans, they're not just his followers, they're not even just his friends. He says, these people are my family. And he begins to teach here something that is worked out throughout the New Testament. And it is an incredible truth. And that truth is that when we trust Christ, when a person trusts Christ, God does not stop in just forgiving them of their sins. But the Bible teaches that he actually adopts us. That he actually makes us members of his family with all of the rights and all of the benefits that go along with that. We become God's sons and daughters. 1 John 1.12 says, But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, I want to think about this just for a few minutes now. Uh, what we need to see about this verse in John 1.12 that's behind you right now is at least two things. The first thing is this, that this right that John is talking about does not belong to everyone. 
Okay, that's important to know. This is not an automatic right that every person on earth has. Not every person in the world is considered a son or daughter of God. God makes a distinction. Not only that, but not every person in the world has the right to call on God as their father. The the Bible teaches that God loves every person wholeheartedly. God loves the entire world. There's no one who is not loved by God. But he does reserve this special, privileged, parental relationship only for those who have received him. You see, that's why this relationship builds on on what's called justification, on being declared righteous before God. We are freed from our sins so that God can invite us into an even greater relationship, and that is the relationship of sons and daughters. And secondly, this morning, I want to think of what an incredible privilege this is. Uh, There is a family who attended the church here, um, two parents, two kids, family of four, and uh, they took a trip to Africa. This was years and, and years ago. And while they were in Africa, they came across a man who was living in desperate poverty, poverty like we can't hardly imagine. And the man had two uh, young children who he couldn't take care of. Both of the children were malnourished. Both of them were sick. And one of them was very close to death. Now, the family from our church, when they saw this, they had a, a lot of options at that moment, right? They, they could um, do nothing. You know, I mean, they could just see it and, and, and feel bad and, and leave. Or they could do something, right? And, and the options of what they could do were kind of unlimited. They, they could buy the family some food. Uh, they could make sure that these kids got the medicine that they needed. They could um, buy a new house for them, potentially, that they could live in that would be a little bit more comfortable. They could pay for the kids to go to school or something like this. They could have done all kinds of different things that would have made an incredible impact in these people's lives and would have been to us uh, commendable in, in every way. But in, instead of doing any of those things, this family decided to do something extreme. They went from being a family of four to being a family of six. They actually spoke to this man and offered to adopt these two children and to raise them as their own. And that's exactly what they did. They brought these two kids into their family and these two became no different than than the other two who were already a part of their family. There was no distinction. They were loved the same. They had the same benefits and privileges. And to this very day, in that family, they remain. And those parents love them as much as they did when they first met them. And that will always be true. And something like this is what the Bible says that God has done for us that God has adopted us into his own family. He's made that kind of a commitment to us. But I want you to just think for a second about the fact that God did not have to do this, right? This is kind of an extreme thing for God to do that no one would really expect of him. I mean, what God could have done is he could have just forgiven us of all of our sins and then kind of let us go our way to live our own life, set us free and and stepped back, right? If he had just done that, we'd still say, wow, he's freed me. He's forgiven me. He, He could have done that and then allowed us to become his servants. 
He could have done that and, and made us like the angels. And all of that would have been wonderful and incredible. It would have been more than enough. But the, te- the Bible teaches that out of the overflow of God's magnificent heart, he voluntarily and freely and gladly makes us his children. So what does this mean for us? What does this uh, do for us? Well, the thing that is so hard for me to comprehend and even harder for me to articulate is that, that what this means is indescribable. I mean, being a, a child of God, being considered to be a brother of Jesus, Jesus calls his disciples his brothers. He's like our older brother. It's hard to really imagine what that means, what that does. It's, it's indescribable. It, it changes something about our very identity itself. It means that you are God's son and you are his daughter and we belong to God in the strongest way possible. And the Bible does tell us some things uh, about this what this means, what this does, what some of the benefits are. It says that now it allows us to draw near to God as a father. Right? When we pray to God, we are to call him our father and be reminded as we pray that, that we have a relationship with him that I would want my children to have with me. We're able to come to him with boldness and, and we can approach him not with fear, Not with uncertainty, but with trust and with confidence. And we can know, the Bible teaches us, that like any good father would, God always has our best interests at heart. Always. He wants good for us. We can rest assured that like any good father, that God is going to grow us up into maturity and and that when we need discipline, when, when we need help, when we're, there's things that we aren't seeing that we need to see, that God will discipline us perfectly, never in anger, never in wrath, always in love, always with our best interests at mind, so that we will grow more and more like our older brother Jesus. It also means, even right now, in the here and now, that none of us are loners. None of us are outsiders, not just with God, but we are brothers and sisters together, right? God brings us into a family together, and and we're united as brothers and sisters in Christ. We're there to help each other and to care for each other and to weep with each other and to laugh with each other and to support each other and to remind each other of our family commitments and to grow in the knowledge together of the kind of father that we have, a father who would never leave us or abandon us or walk out on us and who promises us that not only will he never let us down, but that he will sustain us for all eternity. We're told that as God's children, we have an inheritance with God in Christ. And in a nutshell, what that inheritance is, is it is heaven. 
It is a place in heaven that belongs to us, an eternal home, a spot that we belong in, in a place where we do not, again, live as servants, but we live as God's sons and daughters. I, I feel abs- absolutely incompetent to even describe or declare what all of this means. But adoption, our adoption by God is an incredible privilege. And let me ask you this. Could you ask for anything more? Is there anything more that you could want from God than that? Could you add anything to the list from those things that I just shared? Is there anything else that God could possibly do to prove his love? Not only does he die the death that we deserve, but he makes us his children. He makes us his own with a commitment that can never be broken. J.I. Packer, who was a, a very famous theologian, he wrote these words about adoption, about Christians becoming children of God. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father, he says, is the Christian name. For God. So I want to close this morning by going back to my original question. Do you believe that God loves you like that? Do you believe that? In your heart of hearts, do you believe that? I have to tell you, I have days where I do. I have days where I feel like my heart is going to explode with the knowledge of the love of God for me and for other people that I know and love. And I have other days where that kind of love seems impossible to me. Days where that that kind of love seems so distant and foggy and muddy and like it cannot be true. And for those of you who may be in in that spot where, where that love does not seem evident to you, and maybe even as I've talked here today, you've You've wanted to experience that and, and know that, but, but it's just not there. It, it isn't within you. I want to ask you three kind of diagnostic questions, and I'll, and I'll close uh, with these. And the first one is this. Are you a part of God's family? Are you a part of God's family? Have you trusted Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Have you accepted that free gift that he offers of dying for all the things that you've done wrong? The Bible says to all who receive him, he gives the right to become children of God. My question to you is, have you received him? Because it has to start there. If you have not received him, then you will never know or experience that kind of love. You can hear about it, but you'll you'll never taste it. So I would consider you I would ask you to consider 
Trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You could even do that this morning. In fact, I'll be around after the service. You don't need me. You could do that on your own, but I would be more than happy to talk with you and and help you think that through. It's possible that you do not experience the love of God in your everyday life because you are not yet one of his children, and I would urge you to become one. It's very easy. Jesus did all the hard work for us. Now, maybe that's you. I mean, maybe you already have trusted Christ and been adopted into his family. And, and so if that's the case, but you're still struggling with the love of God, I would ask you this second question, and, and that is this. Are you doing your best to faithfully walk with God? Are you walking with your father? Does your life reflect the fact that you are a child of God? You see, what happens is, like any parental relationship, when a son or daughter walks disobediently, then what happens is he or she may fall under the hand of discipline, of God's discipline. And they may not be able to enjoy that close sense of fellowship and freedom and joy that really is theirs. It's not that the love is not there, Right? God says, to all who received him, he makes children of God. You don't kind of get it once and then lose it. It doesn't go back and forth. It is yours. But if you're not walking with God, you will likely be completely unable to appreciate and enjoy that. And and so the thing to do then is to practice repentance, right? To turn from your sin, to, to go to your father, and to trust that, of course, he'll forgive you. He's your dad. Of of course you can bring these things to him. Of course he'll help you. Of course he still loves you. How could he not? Could you ever not love your children? He's the same. Well, maybe neither of those things strike a chord with you this morning. Maybe you have trusted Christ. Maybe you've received his gift for forgiveness. Maybe you are trying to walk with him imperfectly, but you're trying. Maybe those things don't strike a chord, but you're still having a hard time trusting in that love. You you just can't shake some of the doubts that you've got. And and I would ask you, as as I would ask myself, I ask myself this too, I I ask you this humbly and in love, not in love with you, but in the spirit of love, I would ask you this question. Then do you believe what God says? Do you believe that what God says is true? And do you believe it even in those times that you struggle to feel it? Because if you think that God couldn't or that God shouldn't or that God just doesn't love you in the way that we've described this morning, I want to stand here not at all on my own authority, but behind the authority of the word of God and tell you that is a lie. It is absolutely a lie. God is more devoted to you than you could possibly imagine. And you are loved with a love that is so high and so wide and so deep that you cannot possibly imagine it. And you are loved with a love that is so secure that absolutely nothing can separate you from it. And that's why I think that verse that Mary Kay wrote for us this morning, 1 John Chapter 3, verse 1, is kind of John pointing his finger, right? It's John pointing his finger and saying, see what kind of love the Father has given to us? He says, do you see it? Are you looking? 
Are you listening? Are you perceiving the kind of love that the Father has for us? He says that we should be called children of God. And he says that is what we are. And this morning, if you belong to God, that is what you are. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you so much. It's hard to wrap our minds, our hearts, our words around all that you have done. Help us to trust that. Thank you for doing for us not only what we could never do ourselves, but thank you for doing for us something we couldn't even conceive of. We would never even dare to ask for. You have made us your children. We love you. We, we thank you. We are forever grateful to you. Help us, Father, to imitate you, as the Bible says, as dearly loved children, that, that we would not just experience that kind of love that you have for us, but that it would change everything about us. Father, we pray for people this morning who are doubting that your love is true, and I pray somehow that you would reach them where they need to be reached, and that you would um, help the words that you've written in, in your book to penetrate their hearts in the way that is needed. Father, help us to walk with you as our Father. Thank you that we can call you that, come to you in that, and we thank you that we are your children. We love you. We love being your children. And we do that because you first loved us. Thank you.